1: That, if you live in Connecticut, you probably already know this, but that's the Yukon Huskies fight song. We're going to be talking about marching bands today, and marching bands just turns out to be a bigger and more complicated topic uh, and more evolved than most of us, I think. Most of us, we have fixed in our minds uh, a particular idea of what a marching band is, although I do want to just quickly tell you a story from my my distant, distant past, uh, because it it was the, maybe the first time I realized that a marching band could be rather whimsical. So um, it's the job of the governor of Connecticut. I think it's by statute they have to go up uh, to Fort Drum in upstate New York once a year. I think it's once a year and inspect the Connecticut National Guard uh, when they're on maneuvers and training and stuff up there. And so there. There's always some lucky reporter who, who has to make this trip and in 1979, I think it was me, uh, with Ella Grasso. This is how old I am. Uh, she was mad at me. She wasn't speaking to me. That's another story. But so we fly up there on some kind of government plane and we land. And as we are, then the kind of ramp comes down and the stairs come down. And as Governor Grasso begins to walk down towards the tarmac, there's a military m- marching band there, and they play what I know is Liberty Bell. by John Philip Sousa. But really by that time, it was more indelibly the Monty Python theme song. Da-da, 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 da-da. So I thought, well, it is a Sousa march. On the other hand, it's the Monty Python. I mean, maybe it's just the it's the Sousa March. But as we went through the day, I thought about it a little bit more. And at the end of the day, we had to go to this kind of dinner and reception. And so as we entered this more formal area. This, this big kind of mansion that's on the property and there's this dining area. And as Governor Grasso walked in, the band was there again, and they played Jesus Christ Superstar, just the the theme. Da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I think maybe there's somebody funny behind all this. And they segued from that into, from the same musical, I Don't Know How to Love Him, as a march. So it's ba, 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 ba. So it just made me realize that there's a lot you could do with a marching band, uh, the I'm All Done telling stories, the rest of the show. You're going to hear from uh, Justin McManus, uh, the director of athletic bands at the University of Connecticut, and Dylan Rays, a student at the University of Hartford, but he's so much more around here, uh, and often backs up Cat Passer as technical producer. He's a former intern with us, and yeah, he will run the board of this show. You've heard him do it from time to time. Uh, but that's not the reason that he's a guest on the show today. So actually, Dylan, maybe we will start with you just for a second. I, I didn't realize your dedication to marching bands, at least as you experienced it in high school. So what was this like? You told you just told me it was 40 hours a week?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I marched in high school for all four years. Uh, we are I, – I come from the south and our high school was – not at the time it had just left, but it was used to be part of something called US Bands, which is just, you know, a touring competition all fall. So, you know, we would start in, I think July, we would start with summer rehearsals twice a week, and then into August, we would get into this thing called Band Camp. And so I'd be rehearsing 12 hours a day, five days a week, so uh, 60, 60 hours for a couple weeks in order to get our field show ready. And so the point of the marching band season, as I experienced it, was to get a field show ready. And then we would take that on competition all throughout the fall leading up to Whatever championship our band director decided to uh, enroll us in in the fall, and that was kind of the scope of marching band. Like for the beginning of school, I didn't care about school. I was there to, uh, I was there to march and do the show, and that you know it was a lot of time. It took over my life, but it was a very beneficial
0: experience.
1: And Justin, before becoming the director of the marching band at UConn,
0: you were in the marching band as a student, correct? That's correct. I was here for five years as an undergraduate um, in a few different roles, and then I returned um, as a graduate assistant. Uh, So a total of seven years, but have been around the program for just a little bit. And, and, you know, to, to Dylan's
1: point, I think a lot of people Think about the marching band or the drum corps, and we'll get into the DCI and stuff like that a little bit later, um, as something that you do if you're not a college athlete. Although it doesn't really seem that way when you see what they're expected to do and you hear about a training regimen like the one, the high school one, that that Dylan just described. This is a physically taxing activity. Say some more about that.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I think part of the marching band experience is um, this combination of like athletics, using your um, gross motor skills and your fine motor skills in combination. Obviously, gross motor skills, you're moving around a field in time to music, which itself requires a great deal of coordination, knowing to step in time, which foot to step off on, when to stop and start. At some point, it's almost a safety issue of making sure that you're moving in the correct direction. You're holding a metal instrument and could bump into someone else. And so moving in time requires coordination. And then on top of that, you have your uh, fine motor skills, your fingers, uh, playing an instrument, memorizing the music, playing the music in time. Uh, and so it is absolutely an athletic activity, especially marching at different a uh, fast tempo than a slow tempo and then a fast tempo again. And so uh, there's a, an element of physicality and um, physiological involvement that is very akin to athletics.
1: There's also, I mean, I was sort of making uh, a little bit of uh, light uh, of this marching band up at Fort Drum playing um, excerpts from Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> um, on the other hand, the, the musical palette of, of these bands is just way, way more diverse, I think, than maybe people picture. Let's hear uh, the Madison C- C- Scouts, who I think they come out of the DCI tradition, correct? Yes, they do. Okay. And we'll tell you a little bit about that later. Uh, but they're going to play by our friend Jimmy Webb, MacArthur Park. This is A1. So as we talk about repertoire, Dylan, I mean, you and I are talking about this before the show. I, I had no idea the kind of music that is being tackled by some of these bands. And this sort of DCI, Drum Corps International, these competitions, um, they are tackling, you know, I mean, what we would consider to be kind of avant-garde or, you know, very, very modern kinds of composers' work. Uh, and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I fit that into my, <laughs> my John
2: Philip Sousa understanding of of what marching bands do. So uh, the field show, as we kind of understand it now, is the show designer and your field er, and your drill writer and your music writer and your director all kind of getting together and just figuring out a theme for the year. That's how I like to view each show is each show is based around a theme and a concept. And that's really, you know, something that stems from drum corps. But I, I mean, in high school, there were times when I was playing. Um, uh, we did Rai, I'm pretty sure a couple of times. Um, but then we also did Great Gig in the Sky. Um, there's. It's just a really wide breadth of whatever you know. These people who are very into music know as music. So um, a few years ago, there was the um, uh, Santa Clara Vanguard in 2018 did an Arcade Fire song uh, in the same show that they did. Um, uh, you know, this is stuff from the classical repertoire, it kind of is just whatever these very into music people can think of that would fit within the story that they're trying to tell. And that way, repertoire is just kind of like anything and everything
1: right so the, and that's sort of a different thing Justin from what a marching band does in the context of sports typically um, there are a lot of considerations but ultimately what you do at a halftime show anyway and and maybe what you play from the stands during the game it, it has to play some kind of role in pepping up the crowd right and 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 kind of adding to an atmosphere of athletic competition so just in terms of the repertoire in terms of the music Justin how do you think about that
0: Absolutely. Um, I think in an athletic context, um, and so that could be at our football games. This also applies a little bit to the pep bands at uh, UConn basketball games, but we're talking about uh, football and marching bands certainly here. Uh, we think about a few things. I think one is the fact that a marching band in any, at any you know, university or college is a reflection of its own community. And so we think about what songs are popular to our students, our student body. Within the state of Connecticut, we listen to the radio and figure out what's going on there. Uh, often we're thinking about what is a tune or some repertoire which students and audience members can respond to and can interact with. Uh, and that goes both for we play in the stands and we go up there along with the halftime shows. And we're kind of juggling a few different areas at once. We're thinking about the audience participation and audience appreciation. We're also thinking about, I think Dylan's point, um, this quote, more artistic vision of a, a more extended halftime show when we go out and play at uh, these competitions and events for high school students where they feature longer shows. And so kind of incorporating both of those aspects in audience-friendly tune And then maybe a more artistic tune into the same halftime show year after year uh, it's, it's challenging but also really exciting so i want
1: to talk also to both of you about who's in these bands again dylan you and i were talking about this right before we went on the air so band nerd is a thing at least it's a phrase it's a trope it's something that people use although the more i watch videos and by the way, marching bands and, D- and drum corps, they were just made for YouTube and vice versa. YouTube was made for them. But watching all this stuff, Dylan, I'm thinking, this doesn't seem like stuff nerds do. These are These look like pretty athletic, dedicated people who are doing some pretty hard stuff. So, I don't know. In, in high school, the word nerd gets tossed around pretty easily. Talk about how, how that played out, at least in the high school context.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember very explicitly, like, my freshman year, being told that, like, oh, we don't do that here. Or, like, we don't say that because what we were there to do was so much more. And... um in high school, I think, um, especially, band is one of those things, like a sport, that can be a huge shaper of culture and a developer of personality for young people that are going through a very formative period of their lifetime. So, I mean, our band director really tried to impress upon us that this was, we were not nerds. This was not, you know something to be ashamed of but we worked very hard to make something very cool and put it on the field each year and that was something that we were to be incredibly proud of so i've never you know i I, my mom still sends me memes occasionally of like uh, of like a band nerd things i'm like oh yeah you know i I, (laughs) i i try and be nice about it but like that's never a thing that i've associated with um what you know modern marching music is about yeah justin talk a little bit about who's
0: in the band Sure. So we have uh, this year over 300 members, um, and that's historically what the U- the UConn marching band has been in the last decade or so, which is, is thrilling uh, in Connecticut. And so... We have probably 50 to 60 members who are music majors and oftentimes at universities um, members are associated with being music majors because that's in their career path eventually a lot of them will go on to do this as a living but that means the rest of the band a majority are not majors and so we have over 100 majors across all the colleges and schools at UConn represented in here I think for some students that's the fun part of it is that folks come to the band environment um, each seeking something different. And so for the music majors, they go in really looking at it as a career development opportunity for a biochemistry major or a nursing major who might have been very passionate about music in high school and wanted to continue in college, but won't use that as a career. They're coming for something else. It could be as a, a social activity, something to release the stress from classes. Um, there's leadership opportunities, so a way to develop and become a leader um, in a tangible and specific way. So it's really exciting for us to interact with students who are at all stages and all majors across the university um, and their own personal development. Just, and I'm also
1: thinking like, we heard that clip of MacArthur Park. You know, there's some some person there who's playing the trumpet very well, uh, and who's playing the trumpet uh, in, in a very high register. Uh, and I assume it's because it's not like a symphony orchestra or something like that, where you basically have a pretty stable lineup and you're going to have the same number of violas you know, year after year, um, this is different. You kind of just described that you get what you get. You, you can't assemble the band in advance. So I'm assuming that affects repertoire choice or probably particularly how you arrange music. Can you say something about that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Year to year, we'll have students who come in with different talents and skills. And so if we get one year a player who um, has an especially high range on the trumpet or is a really great guitar player, for instance, I think that's the neat thing, too, about the drum corps activity and marching bands is that there's kind of, they've kind of expanded what a marching band can be. But in any case, if we get a student with a particular talent, uh, we'll look at that and maybe rearrange some of the music. We'll feature that student. We'll actually write the choreography and the formations to um, to focus on that student or a group of students. Uh, And likewise, we focus at the beginning of the year on the other end on establishing a a set of fundamentals and kind of a standard baseline that we um, expect to see at the beginning of the year. That way, a certain kind of repertoire we know going into the season is set and that we can accomplish. Uh, On the other hand, we're willing to be flexible and kind of move around depending on the talents and skills that come in. So it's, again, both challenging, but also really exciting because some students uh, are once-in-a-generation students and we happen to get them year-to-year
1: yeah, I mean, I have to say that, um... A lot of my experience of this, unfortunately, is dictated by the Yale Precision Marching Band, which is not a Precision marking, Marching Band. They're the opposite of that. Uh, and they make a real effort to sort of not really be all that good. And uh, when I was there, they had a, a majorette who could, literally could not catch a baton. Either that or she pretended she couldn't catch a baton to save her life. But there's always somebody there. There was like, it really was a terrific trumpet player uh, during the time I was there. And that just sort of had to kind of break out of all that. And Dylan, I... Um, one thing that we're, I guess, not saying and one thing that probably doesn't come through very well if you're watching a lot of these bands on YouTube, which I've been doing all morning, uh, is they also have to be, in the, particularly in the context of being on a football field, sometimes in a really large stadium or also even just in a stadium performing for a you know, band-specific audience, they've got to be incredibly loud. I mean, there, can you convey any of that to us?
2: Yeah. and uh, I, So... um. Every year when the drum corps tour is happening, um, these groups are going all across the country. And I'm from Virginia Beach, so they happen to stop over sometimes on their tours to have like a day of rehearsal in Virginia Beach. And then the next day they'll have like a fun beach day because it's, you know, where I live is right in between two major uh, competitions towards the end of the season. So um, there's a stadium that's about four or five miles away from my house. This is the dead of summer. It's 100 degrees and very buggy. And even with all of that working against the sound carrying, I remember when Santa Clara Vanguard first came through to rehearse there in 2016. From my house miles away, I could hear the entire show clear as day. And so my friends and I biked down just to see what it was. And it, like, it it it, it's hard to grab. It's hard to understand the like absolute, like just the pure ensemble sound that these people are able to create while sometimes just, like, straight sprinting. Just, it's it's hard to convey without (laughs) hearing it in person. But, I mean, you can hear it on some of those recordings. They're, like, pushing, especially the older ones, they're pushing the limits of, like, what tape is able to pick up because the sound that they create is just, you know, so much. The, um...
1: Well, first of all, I want to say this is all has put me in mind of a novel that I would recommend to people who are interested in Marching Madness, although I hasten to say this novel was written by Barry Hanna, a Mississippi-based novelist in the 1970s. Uh, he was a kind of an acclaimed novelist at the time. Uh, it's, a, I think, a politically incorrect, possibly even kind of slightly cancelable novel at this point, but it's called Geronimo Rex. And the protagonist is a young white Southern man, and his notion of excellence is a band, uh, a a marching band from an all-black school in his town, which is called Dream of Pines, Mississippi. And the way he describes them, he describes this band as having been assembled by this maniac who was both the the principal and the band leader, uh, and who just had this drive for excellence that wouldn't stop. And what he he basically did was told the entire student body that they were all in the band, except for, as Hannah says, 16 weaklings who were told they were going to be the football team, because there has to be a football team for you have a marching band, uh, and they, you know, were overwhelmed in every contest that they were. But the band, here's how he describes the band, all the burly and staunch were in the band with their new blue Napoleonic tunics and shakos overridden with stripes and scrolled lightning filigree, and they were playing tubas, trombones, French horns, trumpets, and euphoniums, or bombing the hides of fresh, brilliant drums. And didn't Jones and company have a band? Uh, he goes on at great length about this. One thing that we could do an entire separate show on probably are the bands from uh, HBCUs, historically black uh, colleges and universities. Uh, let's hear a little bit of uh, one of them. That's called, the, the band uh, is called Sonic Boom, uh, and they are with the um, they are with the Jackson State University uh, uh, teams. Uh, and this is them from the Battle of the Bands. This is A Two Cat. <laughs> That's just them marching into the stadium Uh, and and you get the feeling that they mean business. We'll be talking about this in the next segment, but uh, for example, when the band performs displays where the initials of the university and other initials are formed, the marchers have to take exact steps of 22 and one half inches. All right, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, We're going to come back. We're going to talk with both Dylan and Justin about the choreography itself, uh, what's involved in that. Uh, Our topic today is marching bands. Uh, We are going to go out of this segment with the Swiss top secret drum corps. That uh, is um, a, blue, the, uh, a group called Bluecoats uh, performing Tilt uh, at the Drum Corps International Competition in 2014. Uh, we'll tell you something about that in just a second. And when I say we, I mean Justin McManus, the director of athletic bands at the University of Connecticut. Dylan Ray is a student at University of Hartford who marched competitively through high school and is a former intern with us and now frequently is on the board uh, when on days when we don't have Cat Pastor available. So... Um, Dylan, I I did watch this video earlier today, and I mean, this is a sad part about this being a radio show because there's so many visual things that just will never be translated very well here. But what the blue coats do in this is create the illusion that the field itself is tilted through special effects and choreography, right? They they create a tilt effect.
2: Yeah, so um, they actually, what they did is they brought out a big, I think it was orange banner that represented the you know 100 yards of a football field and they literally just tilted the whole thing uh, I remember reading on an interview somewhere about how they did the drill but and I, I'm sure Justin can get more into this but the whole idea was that uh, of a field show is that not only do you have music you have drill which is a sec- it's a set of images that people are marching between and as a player you get these dots. Um, which is just positions on a football field relative to all kinds of markings on the field, like the um, the kick line, I'm forgetting the name, but then the yard lines too. And so what, they, what was so weird about this show is they took that whole thing and they just kind of rotated it, hence the name Tilt. Yeah.
1: So Justin, say a little bit about what's... Mm. What's involved in the choreography? I mean, Dylan just kind of alluded to that, that I guess one of the things you do, you kind of are generating uh, maybe tens, maybe hundreds of pages of notes, But, uh, but how does this all happen? How do you teach a bunch of people who maybe are pretty good at playing their instruments
0: to march the way they need to march? I think it starts early, and, and Dylan alluded to the band camp that um, many of our programs do, both at the high school and college levels, um, but one of the aspects of that is preparing people physically, going back to the athlete analogy, um, to to do the marching. So I think having a philosophy of what our style, quote, style is, is it a high step, is it a low step, how, you know, how fast do we think we'll be moving, what tempo, um, and that sets us up to actually do the choreography, and it's almost a four-dimensional product because you have the actual people moving on the football field. Uh, and I almost conceive of the music as the fourth dimension because there's so many things effect-wise you can do, the kinds of instruments you're using, the direction that they're pointed in, um, the the texture. In other words, how many different types are playing at any given time. Uh, and so as Dylan mentioned, there's this... Um, um, thing called drill. And so what it really is, is um, if you can conceive a piece of paper that just has kind of a black and white image of a football field with the yard lines and the, the hash marks and everything like that. And a lot of times we'll put these little uh, dots um, that are every four steps. You mentioned that 22 and a half inch spacing um, per step. And it, that kind of defines what our grid is. So it's both running uh, up and down and sideways. Um, these These lines that are every four steps up and down and left to right. And so you'll get a dot uh, in a shape. Let's say a shape is uh, you know a triangle or something like that. A lot of people think that it's as easy as maybe getting up on a, a tower and saying, everybody go form a triangle. Everybody go <laughs> make a shape. Um, but really, it's uh, doing a lot of work ahead of time looking at which dots are forming that shape. And then if I want to go from a triangle to a square, how the the pathways from, you know, the dot in part one of the triangle to part two of the square, where is that dot going? And you multiply that by 300 dots moving in all different ways, different step sizes, facing different directions, using different instruments, and also thinking about where these instruments are on the field. So if there's a, we mentioned kind of a trumpet feature, if we have a, a really good trumpet player, well, we have to make sure that their dot is in a certain location on the field and then maybe goes back uh, in the second location. So there's a lot of different kind of four-dimensional aspects to choreography, both musically, physically, and then in transition.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just stay with me for a second, Justin, on this. It seems like this is seems really hard. You know, It seems very difficult. I mean, it's hard enough to play an instrument and play it well. Uh, but now we're talking about, as you say, 300 different people represented as dots who have to move uh, around in, in a choreographed way. I'm You must have to build a very cohesive and cooperative community. This doesn't work well if people have kind of individualized attitudes about themselves. Can you say something about that, too, about the way what the community of a band has to be?
0: Sure. So I think on the first hand, there is building a structure and bands, marching bands come from a military tradition. Uh, The modern day example would be maybe Texas A&M University, which still has this very military style, Uh, but most of our bands come from the ROTC tradition um, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so this idea of structure and commands, even though the commands themselves might look different from school to school, this idea of when I say something, uh, there's a certain kind of response that helps um, make time efficient. And so part of that is having trust from the students to the directors that we are using their time efficiently. And we know we have the big literal big picture from the tower. But the social element is is so important. And a lot of students, as I mentioned earlier, who um, who both are and are not music majors, come to band um, for the social aspect because it's a a come as you are activity where people from varying backgrounds, varying lifestyles, varying uh, socioeconomic statuses all come and when they're on the field, they're equals. Uh, it's a very equalizing activity, and so this concept of spending so much physical time together on the bus, on the field, et cetera, um, creates that trust. And it allows us to, on the opposite end, to work out conflicts with each other. It opens up space to, um, you know, have differences of opinion and resolve those. And, um, you know, at a time when society is so divided, it opens up space for people to have really genuine conversations, and that builds trust, and that trust translates to the product and the choreography in the field.
1: This may be how we can fix America. Just everybody has to be in bands. Uh, Absolutely. uh, We'll all learn to get together. Yeah, I mean, Dylan, in the case of these uh, drum corps that uh, they compete in the DCI uh, drum corps international tournaments, these... Are there's sort of a difference here. First of all, the band is, is constituted differently in terms of what's allowed to be in there, right? There's there,
2: are, for example, well, you 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 can explain it. What what are the rules? Yeah. So, I, and you know, this is probably a little bit outdated because I've been out of the scene for a while. But generally, it's just brass instruments and any kind of percussion. And in in the modern time now, there's a lot more digital elements like. Um, you know, these, these cores are going on tour with like three audio engineers, which uh, floored me when I found out from one of my friends who went on tour as an engineer for DCI. I didn't even know that that was a position now, but it's changing. But generally the core is still the same as, um, as one would find in a, in like a military core where it's a lot of, it's essentially just front facing brass and percussion and the auxiliary pit that's coming around that and uh, the guard, which you know, originally, and I think I there are some videos out there of this. If you look at older DCI, it's very much more of an honor guard, like ensemble, where they're you know twirling muskets and doing all the um, the pomp and parade that comes with um, escorting world leaders or whatever. Um, and but now, now
1: they're like some combination of modern dance. It's fa- It's fascinating, right. and yeah. they
2: and the physicality is amazing. But the other wrinkle in this is that Drum Corps International, all of these cores are. Essentially, organizations that only exist to do this thing. So, you know, these people, there are like tons of people auditioning for this, and, you know, a good portion don't make it. And then you're paying to be on tour all summer. Yeah. So um, one
1: of the uh, things that I watched today at Dylan's behest uh, was something called the Phantom Regiment. Uh, I believe they're Illinois-based. They're a, a DCI competen- competing unit. Uh, this is, I think, their two- was it 2008? Uh, when they, I think they won the DCI, the national DCI title. This is. Uh, we'll, we'll play the music of Spartacus, and then w- once again, we unfortunately have to then tell you what it is you'd be seeing if you were watching. This is B1CAT. So while all this is happening, Dylan, they are kind of acting out Spartacus. People are getting stabbed with swords, and I mean, they're simulated. I think actually one of the one of the conductors or majors or whatever is kind of murdered up on a platform. So
2: it, yeah, if you watch if you watch the full show, um, the there it, it acts out Spartacus between the two two of the drum majors on field, and the whole thing. Not to spoil this, but <laughs> at the very end, you know the. It's it's like Spartacus, they stabbed the drum major and they committed to this bit to the point where when they did the final retreat where all of the corps marched out on the field to get their scores, they dragged the body of the drum <laughs> major out onto the field. And it's uh, it's that kind of show design and commitment to a bit that I just love. And it's why I really got into this in the first place. Like I was that. Every, every high school has that kid that was just so into drum corps. And that was me in high school for sure.
1: So Justin, also, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, although I did reference it a little bit, reading that piece from the passage from Barry Hannah, just putting on the uniform. I would imagine when you put it out, put on any kind of uniform, it sends a message. That, you know, typically band uniforms have kind of a little bit more of a. Me- I mean, the colors are very vivid and stuff like that. It's to say about to say a little bit about the meaning of the uniform and kind of what happens to a person when he or
0: she puts it on. I think. Um you know this applies both for the drum corps activity as well as uh, marching bands at the high school and college level but um you know the the uniform is it, it's representative, obviously, of a, a program that's bigger than than one individual. And so when you step into the uniform, you put the uniform on. Um, for the, the time you're in the uniform, you are kind of riding this train that existed before you and will exist after you, before your time in the program, after your time in the program. And so there's this kind of invisible weight on your shoulders a little bit of the expectations of, of being a physical embodiment, one piece in this massive puzzle. Um, and so it's something that a lot of people... Uh, talk about in terms of feeling empowered, feeling strong, feeling unified in a way that um, they may or may not feel in other parts of their life, especially with how chaotic the world is is now and coming after quarantine and COVID. I think this notion of um, this oneness and this uh, stability and unity is more than ever, I think, something that people are longing for and long to see, too. Just that this idea of people being together and producing a product of music and marching and choreography um, that they consume, on the other hand, is something that you almost become, I don't want to say a different person, but a different version of yourself in some ways when you're in the uniform, which is a really empowering thing. And Justin, would it, would it be fair to say that marching bands
1: kind of reflect the community that they come from? In other words, the Yukon community is a little bit different from the Bloomington, Indiana community, which is maybe a little bit different different from, you know, UCLA's community. I mean, how do, how does that affect what the marching band does?
0: Yeah, it, it, I, marching bands absolutely do represent um, the communities um, that they're a part of. And so um, I was obviously in the band here in, in the 2000s, and then I went out to the University of Notre Dame for nine years, and I taught with their band program in the Midwest. So I did see uh, IU and Purdue, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, some of those great programs. And even though they're in the same conference, each of those bands... Uh, has a unique culture, just like our band has a unique culture. And there's some certain characteristics that underlie um, most programs, the music and the marching and the fundamentals of what it, what constitutes a marching band. Beyond that, though, I think one of the fun things is that we understand beyond those fundamentals, when we look at a program, we see a physical manifestation of that community, that university, sometimes the town or the city. Um, that could be in the music it plays, that could be in the types of choreography that the, the students or members are engaged in, the uniform design itself, the color scheme. So uh, whenever you see, when I see bands, um, even though I might not know a single person in that band, there's something I'm gleaning um, wherever it is, Utah, Florida, Washington state, something about that that culture and community that I'm seeing for the first time. And so absolutely it's a it's a manifestation of that community.
1: Dylan, I think you have something you want to say about the programs, the the, the music that these uh, these groups play.
2: Yeah, not even just the music, but I, I mean, to what Justin was saying, the there's a sense of community and of collaboration that you get when you're in a program like this. That I, you know, is incredibly foundational to people who are in transitional periods in their lives, of like high school or college, and. Um, Again, one thing that was imparted to me in high school was that, you know, we were, especially when we went to competition every week, we weren't competing against the other people, we were there to compete against ourselves, we were there to be better than we were last week, we were there to, you know, always push the envelope and try to do something better and expect more out of ourselves. And it's this kind of drive to, um, to be the legacy for other people, but also to you know be there for each other and be there for yourself it's a special kind of community and like i um and uh, like i said over break this this collaboration kind of restores my faith in humanity that we can we can work together in a manner that um that lifts us all up and you know that's a very heady concept for marching band but i think it's true so,
1: you know, Justin, I watching all these DCI videos this uh, morning, I was getting the sense that, boy, they're sort of really stretching the concept. And I don't know how much that crosses over uh, into into marching bands. Um, but, you know, marching bands are different today than they were for you 10 years ago. Uh, and I assume in the next 10 years, they're going to change too. Are there ways to kind of glimpse into the future and, and and talk about how the how this whole concept might evolve?
0: I think so. And I think part of that way, as you mentioned, is glimpsing back to the past a little bit and seeing what kinds of changes happened. Obviously, uh, again, there are certain things that underlie the foundation of what a marching band is. But there's other things that when you talk to folks from different decades, uh, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, um, whether it's marching bands or in the drum corps activity, there are things today that we're doing with electronics, with costuming and costume changes, with what the color guard, as you mentioned earlier, what their role is, um, you know, how we how we uh, move around the field itself, not just about moving from one spot to a second spot, but it's the way that that, that, that moves itself. Um, is there some kind of dance in between, some way the person's moving their body or moving their instrument? Um, and so I think if we take a look at the the exponential change over the last twenty years, while we can't necessarily predict if there's going to be some kind of new technology um, you know in ten years, we can kind of glean from society where AI is moving, for instance, with producing uh, music, um how we're we're intensifying and and rapidly increasing the types of uh, color schemes and fabrics and things reason for uniforms slipping in and out of different kinds of changes. Um, we can we can maybe say in in ten years that those things will only have increased and perhaps in some ways too, um, we'll have a, a greater callback to the past, which you see now some programs. Um, doing these kind of retro callbacks to things from the 50s and 60s with uniform style and things like that. So I think society too moves in these 10 and 20 year increments where you both you get excited about something while also feeling a little bit nostalgic. And so I imagine <laughs> in 10 years, we'll be nostalgic about things from the, um, you know, the, the 2000s and, and 20 teens in a way that we're nostalgic now about the 90s. Great. Boy, that was great. I mean, you just explained kind of how culture works,
1: uh, that that advancing and, and retreating at the same time, uh, and not just with marching bands. And yes, good luck with your first uh, AI experience. You know, it's yeah. going to be, Justin, I don't want to play the big Zarathustra. That brings up very bad memories for me, Justin.
0: Um, yeah, good luck to all of us on that. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. All right. So Justin McManus is director of athletic bands at the University of Connecticut. Dylan Reyes is a student at the University of Hartford, marched competitively through high school. And he uh, is has been an intern here and is now uh, our one of our backup board people. He is sort of the backup board person. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a new guest about the history of the marching band.
0: All episodes of the Colin McEnroe Show are available twenty-four-seven at ctpublic.org/slash colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, the newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at Colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show.
1: And thanks to Kat Pastor, she's our technical producer today in most days, and the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode. Uh, Dylan Reyes has prepared a playlist for those of you who just need more marching bands, and we'll get that to you somehow, either up on our website at uh, ctpublic.org slash Colin or or in the newsletter or something, although we're not doing a newsletter for a while. Anyway, we want to talk about the history of all this, and we want to do that with Mark Dirksen, uh, professor of kinesiology and affiliate professor of history at Penn State, where he is also co-director of research and educational programs for the Penn State Center for the study of sports and society, author of numerous books and articles about the history of sport. Mark, welcome to our conversation. Nope. Oh, let see if we can uh, locate uh, Mark. Maybe uh, he may have his audio turned off. Um, so we'll, we'll just look for him for a second. Mark, can you hear me now? All right. Well, we'll find him eventually. So one of the things that we do want to talk about here is that um, this is an, uh, an old, old tradition. As we were doing research for this show and starting to get things going, I was reading, because we're kind of obsessed with uh, with the Roman Empire, uh, the <laughs> <laughs> that in the time of time, well actually in greco-Roman antiquity generally speaking, um, the ancestors of the many of the instruments that are played by marching bands now existed uh, and they were sometimes played competitively. Uh, they were uh, there were prizes you could win prizes uh, you know even I think at the Olympics, the early Olympics for music. So yeah, this has been around for a while. Um, so let me just check in one more time and see if we've got uh, Mark, uh, Mark Dyrus in here. Mark, are you there? No, Dylan, you may be the guest here for the for the, for the C segment, uh, unless we can find Mark. So, uh, I don't think you went back to or roman antiquity, but you did go back. Uh, you wrote us a little informal
2: history uh, of the marching band. Um, <laughs> where does it start for you? So, for me, it starts in um, Europe. It, it it starts in the European military tradition of you know romantic battles with long lines of men and you know the beating of the drums and the playing of the fife and uh, if you're ever in colonial Virginia, you can see a bunch of college kids reenacting that for you, um, uh, getting their college paid for by Rockefeller money. Uh, and so a lot of the a lot of what we now know as the modern uh, drum corps uh, originated from those military bands because military music was useful as a signal because a voice can't carry across a battlefield, but a drum can and a fife can they're so loud um (laughs) so the music originated there uh with your fife and your drum corps and then as we went into the civil war uh uh, the advent of brass instruments um as just a fixture in popular music uh allowed us to get more into the um the world of the modern drum corps so uh it the, the common story is that as uh military groups enlisted in the civil war and went off to war um uh, brass musicians would just, the band from the town would just follow them. And so there were a lot of these brass bands that came back from the Civil War, and then uh, they became very popular with veterans groups. And that's kind of how we get the modern marching band, is it originates from the uh, the field music and the music groups of the Revolutionary and the Civil War.
1: Yeah, and at a certain point though, like World War One, for example, it doesn't really make sense to have bands around anymore, right? Once the ordinance gets big and heavy, um, the, the band can't really be near the battlefield
2: yeah i I, especially towards the end of the civil war even as in in stuff like the battle of the crater as you got more into like world war one style trench warfare bands became less and less useful so field music was phased out in favor of whistles and uh, shepherd tones if you're in 1917 um but the uh the music still stayed around Uh, it was played by you know musicians on their off time or veterans groups and so those were the inception of the modern drum corps were these veterans groups and these veterans groups uh, uh, american league the you know police leagues in local areas would just host these competitions for brass bands and you know local marching groups and that's kind of how we get into the modern sense. That's, that's your 10,000-foot view. Yeah. And
1: in the modern sense, I mean, it kind of makes sense that marching bands and football became uh, each other's friends. Um, I mean, when The more that you learn about marching bands, the more you realize how much they do resemble football. I mean, that whole idea of 22-and-a-half-inch steps, I mean, if you look at the way a football offense is designed, it's designed kind of the same way. Receivers are supposed to run very precise routes and break at a certain time and all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and all of that, I think, both for the band and the game itself uh, is some kind of domestic equivalent of military warfare.
2: <laughs> That's certainly a way to put it. But, you know, by advent of both needing to use a field, I think they kind of naturally got paired. That's just my little theory um, that we can go into those um, <laughs> if we have more time. Well, I mean, one thing that you you were saying in your little history there, too, is that the, the
1: sounds of these bands changed, you know, as you get uh, into the 70s. Um for example, I mean obviously the bands are kind of following popular music a little bit uh probably the entire time, but um like just describe for example how a band in the 70s, a marching band might sound different
2: from one in the 60s. So uh the 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 way I laid out that little history document is kind of the there, there's a progression that follows the advancement of technology and the inclusion of more instruments. When marching bands when you, when you think about marching bands in the uh, in the '60s and '70s, there's a lot of there's a lot of bugles, and th- you know that's about it. There, it's a very regimented to the point where at DCI competitions throughout the '70s, musicians were like sneaking valves in their sleeve onto the field because you could you know get a deduction if you had an instrument that was not regulation. Um, so music is still kind of in this very uh, like tonal se- or yeah diatonic sense. It's it follows. The March tradition much more than it follows any modern music. As you're coming out of the late 70s, out of the 70s into the 80s, more instruments means more tonal possibilities, means more music. So you know you're starting to see the inclusion of things like earlier we heard MacArthur Park, that's jazz in 1989. Um, the Blue Devils did a really good arrangement of a Buddy Rich tune that was just. Swinging, and so you have you're starting to get more and more influences into the music, and eventually, um, we're getting to modern music. All right, uh,
1: I hate to do this, uh, we finally uh, got Mark Diverson, we got him on a phone. Uh, we're almost out of time, but Mark, uh, since we're almost out of time, uh, one of your specialties is the way that su- Super Bowl halftime shows have evolved. In the early stages, Super Bowl halftime shows were with marching bands, and then something something happened to them. They're they're not like that anymore. Can you give us that
3: in a nutshell? Yeah, I think briefly that initially, uh, professional football copied college football in terms of spectacle and the early su- Super Bowls up through the, uh, 1980s, early 1990s featured coller- co- college bands, including some great bands, Grambling Southern. Florida A&M from historically black Colleges and universities And then there's a shift to uh, Entertainers, there was an overlap For a while, Super Bowls Would have uh, Al Hurt Or other major figures <laughs> Who connected with marching bands uh, But in 1991 uh, They began to feature Up With People uh, a, a group that's sort of gone out of fashion Now, a more Hollywood Oriented group uh, and then in 1993, there's the famous show with Michael J- Jackson, and that's kind of the end of the marching band at a Super Bowl halftime show.
1: Well, I think that there's st- in some cases still there. We don't see them on television necessarily, but I was sort of even looking at the at the rosters, and, and maybe not every year, but I think if they, you know, if they're playing in the stadium in Atlanta, they you know the nearest big Georgia marching band does something, right? They haven't been necessarily written out entirely. They're just not what we're here for anymore.
3: Yeah, they're sometimes in pregame appearances, or they appear in the, the stadium uh, as pet bands, and they're around. Occasionally, you get uh, these major artists who now see the Super Bowl as a venue for um, branding, incorporate a marching band-inspired theme, or even a marching band in their show, But uh, as the feature at halftime, what you expect at a college football spectacle, you just don't get that at the Super Bowl anymore. It's gone a different direction. In fact, it's not for a live audience anyway. It's not Super Bowl halftime shows are for the TV audience. They're not for the people in the stands at the games.
1: Absolutely. All right. I think we're going to have to stop there, although uh, there's so much more to talk about. But thank you very much, Mark Dirksen and all of our other guests today. Uh, Thanks to Kat and to Lily for everything. And yeah, since I talked about it right at the beginning, we'll go out with Liberty Bell by John Philip Sousa.